Alright, Colossians chapter number 3, and we're going to pick up at verse number 15. Paul says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, last week, we spent the entirety of the lesson talking about uh, Christian truth or truth about the Christian life. Now, I'd remind you that the reason for the letter to the church at Colossae was to combat the, uh, the heresy, the apostasy, the lies of the Gnostic cult that was very, very prevalent in the early New Testament church. It was seemingly the constant opponent of truth. If it was not the Judaizers, I'll say it this way, if it was not the Judaizers, it was the Gnostics. Uh, Inasmuch as the errors that were in the uh, New Testament church that they were fighting against were doctrinal, uh, it was always seemed to be, as in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers, or uh, if you were to look in the books of First uh, John, book of Colossians, uh, it, it would be the Gnostics. Uh, so over and over again you find these two dual heresies trying to infect the New Testament church. And so Paul takes up this theme of truth. Uh, you know, the only way to combat a lie is with the truth. Uh, it's the only way. I heard uh, an analogy given that in, in ancient Chinese banking families, uh, back when uh, in, in the dynastic days there would be families whose entire trade was the banking industry there in China, and they said that they would, from a very young age, let their children play with currency of all various denominations. I'm talking about from the littlest age. The idea behind that was this, that from the youngest age, they would become acquainted with the real deal. And when the time came that they were in the industry, they'd know the counterfeit from the real one because they were acquainted with the real deal. Let me tell you something. There, there is a lot of usefulness in learning and studying, observing and arming yourself against various heresies. Uh, in fact, one of the things I was praying about doing an Apollos course on was addressing various cults that are prevalent in Western society today. There is merit in that, and I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. But I will tell you this, the best way to guard yourself against error is with the truth. Learn the Word of God. Learn the truth of God. Learn the doctrines of God. And that will help shield you and guard you against heresy as it appears. So Paul takes up this theme of truth, and he presents to us the truth about Christ in the first chapter. The second chapter, he deals with the truth about the cults that were seeking to uh, pervert and corrupt the church at Colossae. And then in chapter number 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, he takes up the truth about the Christian. And he deals with how the truths about Christ and what he has done, how they mold and inform and shape our life. One of my great fears as a pastor... And as a preacher is that we have somehow compartmentalized the work of Christ, the theological, mystical work of Christ, what he did for us and what he does for us as our high priest at the right hand of the Father. We have compartmentalized that away from practical Christian living in so much as we sort of have abstract truths and ideas. And then over here we have practical instruction. And one of the things that I think it has done is it has caused us to raise up a generation of young people who think that Bible Christianity is nothing but a rule book. Just a bunch of regulations and rules and that's all that it is. Let me tell you something. Any relationship has rules. 
Uh, I don't remember where I said it, probably over here, maybe behind the pulpit over in the sanctuary. Uh, but I'll tell you this, that, that my marriage is a relationship. It's not just a bunch of rules, but my marriage has rules. Your marriage has rules. There are certain things you can do and cannot do if you want to maintain the health of that relationship. But if your marriage has become nothing but just a, a, a loveless ritual of following regulations and rules, well, it won't be very long and you'll cease to follow those regulations and rules. And your marriage will fall apart. The same thing is true in our relationship with Christ. Now, let me say unequivocally, I believe we're once saved, always saved. I'm not saying we lose our salvation, but I do believe we can, uh, to use a colloquial term, dry up on the vine and die in our Christian walk. If all Christianity is to us is a list of rules and of regulations. And the way we bridge those two things is Christ. The fullness, the richness of Christ. Learning more of what He did for us. I don't just mean that He died, He was buried, and He rose again, He ascended to heaven. But I mean understanding what He was accomplishing by doing that. Inasmuch as we apprehend that truth, I believe it will help enrich and sustain our relationship with Him and our practical Christian life. So that's why Paul turns to the the practical aspects of Christian living. And last week we focused entirely on what this means in our personal life. I'll tell you this, if your personal life is not right, your public life won't be right. You may be able to wear a mask for a little while. You may be able to fool people for a little while. But sooner or later, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaketh. Sooner or later, if it's in your heart, it's going to come out your mouth. So Paul deals first with it in our personal life. And then this evening, I want to take up uh, three or four, excuse me, things that are found here as they relate to other aspects of our life. The verses that we've read tonight deal with the truth about the Christian in our church life. Every Christian is given a local church. And you might say, well, preacher, what about people out in the wilderness who, you know, have been won to Christ by a, a gospel track? Well, this is the reason Christ said where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. If they can go out, and as a believer, they ought to be able to go out and win somebody to Christ. And if they'll be willing to do that, if they'll be willing to go out and reach somebody for Christ, I'm not saying all their spiritual needs are met just with those two individuals, but I am saying that there constitutes, in germ form, the local church. Uh, every single one of us, God's given us a local church. We're planted in it. We're given to it. It's given to us. And what we know about Christ ought to dictate and inform how we interact with our church family. In the verses we've read, 15 through 17, I want you to look at verse number 15. Notice the principal element in the way we deal with our church family. I'll tell you what, let me pause there before we go any further. I want you to notice something. Look in these three verses, and notice that in three verses we have something that appears six times. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And he says later on, singing with grace in your hearts. Verse 17, he says, whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that in three verses, rapid fire, one right after the other, we have six instances of personal pronouns. Can I just use that to make this simple application? When we're talking about the church, we're talking about us. Saved, baptized, born-again believers that have joined together, that we might carry out the Great Commission and worship the Lord and please Him. That's what the church is. It's not the building, it's not the property, it's not the name, it's not the legacy, it's not the heritage, but rather it's the individual. 
You want to know what our church is going to be? It's going to be the sum total of us. Uh, Listen, if we're carnal, if we're fickle, if we're lazy, if we're selfish, our church is going to be like that. If we're spiritual, if we're selfless, if we're dedicated to the Lord, if we're committed to His cause, if we're sacrificial in the way that we minister and serve, then that's what our church is going to be. The church is what the people are because the people are the church. And you've heard this question asked, but can I challenge you with it just once more? If everyone in in the church was like you, what kind of a church would we have? If everyone in the church was like me, if Wall Ridge Baptist Church was nothing but, you know, 100 or 120 Toby Webbers walking around, what kind of a church, how many people would we win to the Lord? How many missionaries would we support? How faithful would the services be attended? How dedicated would we be to the cause of Christ? How many ministries could be fulfilled if it was like me? Because the reality is, that's what the church is. It's the sum total of us. So he gives for us now the principal element, verse number 15. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. The principal element in the church ought to be peace. Now go ahead and tell you that there are certain times when peace is not a possibility. The Bible says that as much as in us is, we ought to live peaceably with all men. That tells you this, that there are some men, Paul says, unreasonable men, and he prays that we not be delivered unto them. There are some folks you can't live peaceably with. But I found that more often than not, we claim that when that's not the reality. You know, the Bible says that only by pride cometh contention. So where there's conflict, somebody's pride got involved one way or the other. And you and I, we dictate whether uh, conflicts are resolved peacefully, not just in our personal relationships, but in the church, we dictate, we decide whether that is the case. Paul uses a word here that's interesting. He says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And that carries with it the idea of an umpire. You know, an umpire is there for when there's a dispute. He's there to give basic instruction. But other than that, what the umpire's really there for is when there's a dispute. Somebody comes sliding into home plate and the dust clears and the smoke clears and they jump up. And inevitably, you, all, you see it a hundred times if you watch baseball, inevitably the batter, the, the batter will jump up and say, man, I was safe by a mile. And the catcher, he'll jump up and he'll say, no way, you were out. And the fact is, neither of them have the authority to determine the situation. They can cry and weep and moan and complain all they want, but there's an umpire standing there. And he's an impartial third party. And his responsibility is not to take up one cause or the other. His responsibility is to speak the facts of the matter. And he is the one that rules in that situation. Now, I don't think Paul knew anything about baseball. But certainly, in, uh, in, in New Testament times, the Romans had their games and their contests. And the idea was somebody that is an impartial arbiter and an impartial mediator and impartial authority in a matter. Paul says this, that that's what the peace of God ought to be in our lives. The peace of God ought to be an ever-present fact that we view as an authority. You know, in our lives, anytime we have anything that is troubling, anything that's disturbing... We are immediately faced with two opposing uh, philosophies, wills, ideas, however you want to describe that. We have the promises of God on one side, and then we have the fears of the flesh on the other side. And we have to decide what we're going to yield to. Well, what does Paul say? He says, let the peace of God. The, the fact that he, later on here, just the next verse, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We'll get to that in a moment because that's where the peace of God comes from. The peace of God comes from the promises of God. And he's saying this, that God desires to give you peace. 
in your interactions with each other, and peace in your own spirit and soul when trials and troubles come. And it ought to be that the guiding rule should be, how can we maintain peace in our spirit? And we do that not by acquiescing to our fears, but we do that by appropriating God's promises. And as far as discord and conflict in the local church, it ought to be that our main goal is always to seek that there be a peaceable resolution if we can do that without infringing upon the truth of God's Word. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says that we are to be peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. It's not always making peace to keep peace. There are times you have to take a hard stand. But it ought to be that our desire is always at the end of the day, because we know peace comes from living in accordance with God's Word. That if we can stand upon the truth of God's word and do it in kindness, speak the truth in love, that's the avenue to a peaceful resolution. Whether it be discord, conflict with each other in personal relationships, disturbance and discord in our soul, or disturbance in the church body. So he talks about the enthronement of peace. And then notice the enlargement of Christ's peace. He says in one body. So we know this is talking about the church. This isn't talking about... Uh, individuals, that's not the direct application, although application can be made, but the direct application is in the church. He says, let the peace of God, verse 15, rule in your hearts uh, to the which also you're called in one body. So in other words, the authority of God's word and God's peace, it reaches beyond just our spirit. It reaches to the jurisdiction of every interaction we have with every belief. Let me tell you something. I do believe, I, I believe two things at the same time. It'll absolutely revolutionize your perspective on the world when you recognize that everything's not always polar opposites. You can believe two things at one time that don't contradict. Uh, I believe two things at one time. I believe that the local church is God's arm, God's tool, God's resource to reach out and touch this physical world. I believe that what God does in this world, He does through the local church. You'll find no other body, no other organization that is constructed, structured, administered, ordained by God in the Word of God for this dispensation of grace than the local church. I also believe, however, that every believer is knit together, mystically speaking, in the body of Christ. I believe that whether or not Wall Ridge Baptist Church is your church home, if you're saved and I'm saved, I believe that we're knit together uh, through the gospel and through the fellowship of Christ and through the body of Christ. I believe both those things at the same time, and the Bible teaches both of those things to be a reality. And that tells me that every interaction that I have with every belief in the local church, but even beyond that, every single one ought to be ruled and guided by this principle of peace. Look at the end of verse number 17. He says, or verse 15, I'm sorry, he says, and be ye thankful. Notice the enjoyment of peace. Be ye thankful. You know, I find this, that oftentimes our gratitude is robbed from us when we come into times of conflict and discord. Isn't it amazing how quickly a good day can be ruined? Everything can be going wonderfully. One bad thing happens, and all of a sudden, man, I mean, we're just, history has been rewrote, and we woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Everything has fallen apart. You'll find that gratitude is a good antidote to a bad and bitter spirit. He says this, that inasmuch as we pursue after peace, the avenue of doing that, as far as our spirit is concerned, is gratitude and thankfulness. Man, it's hard to be mad at one another when you recognize that at the end of the day we ought to all just be sitting in hell right now. I mean, really, it is. It's hard for me to be mad at a brother in Christ when I recognize that at the end of the day 
The very fact that I even have a Bible to read to have an opinion about things is the mercy and grace of God. Gratitude goes a long way. You remember I told you that only by pride, or the Bible tells you, Proverbs tells you, Solomon tells you, the Holy Ghost tells you, that only by pride cometh to contention. When we'll humble ourselves enough to take a a, a spirit and attitude of gratitude, we'll find that that does a lot to diffuse contentious situations. So we see the principal element. Verse 16, we find a parallel element. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we find that the peace of God can only reign and rule in our lives. It can only umpire our actions inasmuch as the Word of Christ dwells in us. Uh, For instance, an umpire is not much good if there's not a rule book, right? Because then it's just his personal opinion. Well, and I'm not saying God's personal opinion is not authoritative, But how can the players expect to play in accordance with the umpire's wishes? And how can the umpire's judgment be anything other than personal opinion if there is not a rule book? See, at the end of the day, the way that we call balls and strikes is that there's a rule book that dictates where the window is, that dictates what the guidelines are, what the principles are. And the only way that you're going to have peace in your life Personally, in your spirit, and the only way you're going to be able to find peaceful resolution with believers when there's discord is if we're all reading from the same rule book and if we all accept it as a place of authority. Notice there's two kind of ideas given here. Uh, he, he shows us first the word abiding in us. Now, I find that interesting because the Bible tells us in the book of James, chapter number one, I believe it is, that the word of God is the engrafted word. Literally, the word of God takes up residence in our heart. When we're born again, you say, how is that? Because the author of the word of God takes up residence in our heart, the spirit of God. But I don't mean to make the truth of God's word abstract, nor does God, because the fact is the spirit of God is only ever going to bear witness through the truth of the word of God. You might say, well, preacher, there's been times that God's dealt with me and I wasn't listening to a sermon. I wasn't listening to a gospel song. I wasn't reading my Bible. That's true. But there is no question that the truth and principle that he communicated to you was found in the truth of God's word. It's not something that came from some schizophrenic or disjointed opinion of his, but it's something that came from the truth of God's word because that's what he speaks of. Christ said he'll not speak of himself, he'll speak of me. Christ is the word. He's the word made flesh. So the word of Christ has to dwell in us. The word abiding in us denotes an inward flow. This is what I'm getting at. The Word of God takes up residence in our heart and life when we're born again. With that said, this Bible is not knowledge we're born with. We have to take the truth of God's Word out of the book and put it in our hearts for it to be able to do any good. We have to learn it. We have to memorize it. We have to study it. We have to meditate in it. I think that it's a good practice, and we'll get to this before we close today, but to communicate the Word of God in our everyday language, to let it be just a part of our vernacular. You'd be amazed how many phrases in the English language have come from this King James Bible. Uh, When you hear somebody say the salt of the earth, that's a King James Bible term. That's why it's in the common vernacular. And uh, we could go, I could give you a list of half a dozen, or probably a dozen or thirty, but they seep their way into the common vernacular. And I think that's good, man. I think that we ought to embrace and study and memorize the Word of God. The Holy Ghost won't have Scripture to bring to your mind if you're not dwelling in the Scripture. And if you're not dwelling in the Scripture, how can it dwell in you? Now, we see an inflow of scriptural truth, that it abides in us. 
But that inevitably will produce an outflow of scriptural truth. He says not only does it abide in us, but it's to abound as well. He says that it ought to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And what is that going to produce? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Can I tell you something? That singing, I understand that Lucifer was created as the angel of music. I understand the Bible talks about the pipes and the tablets that were built into his very body. I understand that music is a powerful tool that the devil uses. But can I remind you that it wasn't the devil that created music, it was God that created it. First time you'll ever find in the, in the Word of God, singing, is in the book of Exodus after they come across the Red Sea. and said that after the Lord had delivered them, that, that, that Moses and the people sang. Next time you find it, you know where it's at? When Moses comes down off of Sinai and he says, I hear the sound of singing. And the people were dancing around in debauchery. That tells me this, that music is something created by God for the enjoyment of man, for the enrichment of the body of Christ. But it's something that very quickly the devil will pick up and try to co-opt and corrupt. So you say, what do we do about that, preacher? Well, I can do anything else. We take it back from him. And we allow singing, and I don't just mean, I'm going to get to this, but I don't just mean singing in the sense of, of hitting musical notes. But I'm talking about having a song in your heart. I'm talking about having worship in your soul. I'm talking about having joy in your walk. He mentions two things. Notice them with me. He, he talks about uh, teaching and admonish. And we could say this, that this is, is the Word of God flowing out of us in sermon form. And I don't mean preaching a sermon, but I mean truth being delivered. It ought to be in our interactions with each other in the body of Christ. And later on, he's going to give emphasis to our interactions with the world around us, or the language Paul uses is them that are without, the lost individuals that are around us, that we ought to be communicating the truth of God's Word day in and day out. It ought to be when people come to us with problems, we've got scriptural answers. It ought to be when people come to us to tell us about good things, we've got scriptural answers. We ought to be teaching and admonishing. Teaching, of course, means to communicate truth. Admonish means to correct with an, with an end or to rebuke with an end of correction. So, in other words, not just fussing at people, not just beating people over the head with truth, but instead in kindness and gentleness seeking to instruct them in the truth of God's Word. And then not only in sermon, but also in song. And if the sermon, the teaching, the admonishing speaks of truth, then I think that no doubt the song speaks of our testimony. The greatest one, I won't say the greatest, one of the greatest testimonies for the Lord in the world is a singing Christian. Someone with joy in their life. Someone with a song. Even if you never hit a musical note. The Bible didn't say that we ought to make a good noise for the Lord, just a joyful one. I'm not talking about your ability to carry a tune, but I am talking about your uh, willingness to carry a song in your heart. Praise, rejoicing, joy in the Lord. What a powerful testimony that is for the world around us. There was a story told, and I guess I'll go ahead and share it because you gave me six extra minutes. So um, I, I'm not one for necessarily classical Greek literature. Uh, but with that said, you've all no doubt heard of, of sirens, right? Uh, the ancient Greek myth of these women that would sit upon the rocks and they would sing a beautiful song. It would lure sailors over to the rocks and... They would die upon the uh, upon the shore and upon the shoals. And uh, there's two men in, in Greek uh, mythology that sirens interacted with. One is a man by the name of Ulysses. And uh, Ulysses, when he was coming towards the siren's song, his solution was to do this. 
He took all of his men, of course this is all mythology, but he took all of his men and he had them put wax in their ears. And he decided that he wanted to hear the siren song, but he didn't want to risk being lured by it. So he had his men take and tie him to the mast of the ship so that when he went by he could hear the song, but there was no risk of him running the ship into the shoals. There's also a man by the name of Orpheus. And Orpheus, when he came by the siren song, he faced it a different way. Instead, as he was going by the sirens, he lifted his voice and sang as loud and as high as he could above them, praise unto, well, for him, because he was a Greek and a pagan, the gods. But the idea being this, what the cult at Colossae wanted the people to do to avoid the siren song was to, uh, through legalism and through aestheticism, tie themselves to the mast post, stuff wax in their ears, just try to shut out through rules and regulation the temptation that was around them. I think what Orpheus did is probably what God intends, though, that we meet the temptations of the world with a better song and that we sing with grace in our hearts and joy in our spirits, recognizing that for all the allurement that the world tries to throw towards us, we have something far better in Christ, far better that the world could never give us. We have the parallel element, verse 16. Look at verse 17 with me. He says this, And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We have the practical element to our interactions with our church family and with the world around us. Notice what we are to do things proportionately. I think this is so important. He says, whatsoever ye do in word or deed. You know, it's easy just to read past that. Those are two very different ideas, in word or in deed. One denotes the idea of communicating truth. The other denotes the idea of practicing something, of, of accomplishing something. And he says, what, whatever you're doing, if it's in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. It ought to be that we as Christians seek not to be unbalanced. You know that most heresies that take up uh, a home in the New Testament church are predominantly birthed out of an imbalance. I don't have time to go through a thousand examples, but can I give you two very quickly? The Calvinistic heresy that claims that God picks people to heaven, picks people to hell, that God has a certain group of people He's chosen, comes out of two things. One, a misunderstanding of prescience and foreknowledge, and a misunderstanding of what election is in the Bible. But also, very often, it comes out of an undue emphasis upon the role of God the Father in the redemption of humanity. Now, don't misunderstand me. God the Father has a big part in the role and role in the redemption of humanity. But He didn't do that thing alone. He didn't save us alone. It took Christ. It took the Holy Ghost. By the same token, on the other side of the road, there's another ditch. The charismatic movement comes out of an undue emphasis and attention towards the office and role of the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you something. I believe in the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Even if I didn't believe Him, He'd still be real. And I believe that the Holy Ghost has an active, integral, irreplaceable, uh, indispensable part in the saving of a sinner, in the sealing of that sinner to heaven, in the changing of that person's life, the sanctifying of them. I don't believe we ought to be dismissing the Holy Ghost. I think a lot of churches are dying today because they want to dismiss the ministration and office of the Holy Ghost in the local church. But I'll tell you this, if we put our focus on Him at the expense of the Father and at the expense of Christ... We wind up becoming wide-eyed fanatics who allow our understanding of Christian experience to be denoted and to be defined by personal experience. 
and we give way to what they call antinomianism, the idea of cheap grace, that all that it's about is just having an experience and the truth of God's Word doesn't matter. I've shared this with you before, but one day my head almost exploded. I was reading a, an argument online, because uh, that's real productive, right? I was reading an argument online, these guys, they were talking back and forth about some passage, some scripture, I can't remember what it was, but somebody made the statement, they said, well, I don't read the Bible, I just follow the Spirit. You know? I, I, I Listen, if it would have hurt their feelings, I would have broke my computer in two. But the fact is, the only person's feelings it would have hurt was me if I had done that. That's what's wrong with a lot of Christianity today, man. Just no concept of what God's Word teaches. The fact of the matter is, the Holy Ghost ain't never going to say anything opposite of Scripture. He's the author of Scripture. And if He's God, He's infallible, He's inerrant, and He's immutable. So He's always and only and ever going to speak in agreement with the truth of God's Word. And you might say, well, preacher, what's the right emphasis then? What's the right balance? Get your eyes on Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now you might say, well, preacher, are we not neglecting the Father and the Spirit if we do that? No. Because you remember on Mount, uh, well, I don't know what mountain, on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, whenever Christ was up there with Elijah and with Moses, and Peter wanted to build three tabernacles, the voice of the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. And then he said this, Hear Him. Christ said this about the Holy Ghost, that He's not speaking Himself, He testified me. We put the emphasis on Christ, we're doing exactly what the Father and the Holy Ghost want us to do. You know what's needful in a Christian's life? Balance. Balance. We need the Word. We also need deed. If we have only the Word, we become abstract, theoretical sages of doctrinal truth. But we become depraved because it never changes our life. If we have a focus on deed, but not on the Word of God, then we merely become do-gooders that have no grounding in scriptural truth. And we are very soon to drift off into heresy. We need both. We're to do all things proportionately. Number two, we're to do things properly. We're to do them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to be that our interactions with each other are of such character and of such quality and of such ethics that we would not be ashamed to put the name of Jesus Christ on it. Can I give you a basic rule to guide you in life? If what you're about to do you can't do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought not do it. Now that's not to say that everything that we do, we do to serve God. Uh, you know, listen, I ate a taco for lunch today. I don't think God was particularly impressed with that. It was a good taco. I was impressed with it. But it wasn't something I had to apologize to the Lord over. It ought to be that everything we do, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that we have to be ashamed of before Him. And then we're to do all things prayerful. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Boy, it'd fix a world of messes that we create for ourselves if we'd stop before we act and pray first. Pray first. You'll find this, that if you'll pray and get an answer from God, you'll never be led wrong. Most of the time, our problems arise. In our personal lives, in our public lives, in our church life, they arise because we didn't take time to stop and pray before the decision we made. So, he gives us some truths about our church life. Look at verse number 18, down through verse 21. He says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. He gives us some guiding principles for our domestic life. Notice he points first off to our roles as partners. 
And I wish I had about two hours to just labor in here because I feel like there's a great misunderstanding about these truths. I, I think that a couple things. One, I think that in marriage, I think there is relationship and there are roles. And I think that our relationship with one another, Paul said this in the book of Ephesians, uh, right before and right after, in fact, he gave the instructions about marriage, he said we're to submit ourselves one to another. And the fact is, if your perspective on the roles in the home is, I'm going to get mine, whatever happens to them, I don't care. I'm going to make sure that I have what I need. I'm going to make sure that I'm happy. And I can promise you, it's not going to last very long. But we do need to recognize that roles are vital. They're vital. The home has to have order, as anything else does. And there's been great error birthed out of these verses from people trying to say less than what God said and more than what God said. When a person tries to convey the idea as though marriage is a partnership that does not have roles or order or structure, that it is merely just two people cohabitating together, then they've said less than what God said. Because God said clearly there is an order in the home. The husband is the head of the home. The wife is to submit herself to her husband. The children are to obey the parents. By the same token, when people try to suggest that the husband being the head of the home, uh, that he's the boss... Well, it's not what God said. God didn't say you were the boss. He said you were the head. There's a difference. And when they try to suggest that wives are to be slaves to their husband, that's not what God said. God said you're to submit to your husband. He didn't say you're to be a slave to your husband. I say that to say this. Corey's over there giggling. I'm going to cut that out now, the recording. And uh, I say that to say this. Great error comes when we try to say more or less than what God said. We do have roles. There has to be a structure in a home. Anything with two heads is a monstrosity, and it doesn't live very long. You see those videos or those pictures sometimes? Here's a cow born with two heads. They don't show you that that thing lives like 30 days and then dies. It's a mutation. It's not normal. And a home is just the same. It has to have a head. It has to have an order. It has to have a structure. And what are those orders? Well, we've already mentioned them, but the wife is to submit herself unto her own husband. And if I had a room full of pastors here, I'd really preach on that, her own husband. Because I think a lot of pastors try to overstep their authority. Uh, I believe that a wife is to be submitted to her own husband. Not anybody else's husband, her own husband. And notice it says this, as it is fit in the Lord. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It's right. If the world tries to tell you it's wrong or that you should be ashamed of it, they're lying to you. God says it's fit. This isn't Paul saying this. This is God saying it's fit, it's appropriate, it's right. What then is the response of the husband? The husband is to love their wives. I find it interesting that nowhere is a wife commanded to love her husband. But the husbands are commanded to love their wives. Could it be the fact that their love for us is going to be very much predicated on how well we love them? And how sacrificial we are towards them? It says, be not bitter against them. Oh boy, I'm going to have to preach at me and you both right here. Because what that word bitter means is it means irritated, exasperated. To live in a constant state of frustration. And men, if we're being honest, it's easy to do. Sometimes we feel like we have a lot of weight on our shoulders. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But for whatever reason, sometimes we feel a little entitled to give the worst of ourselves to our family. We're to give the best of ourselves to our family. If somebody's going to get fussed out, if somebody's going to be the, bear the brunt of our irritation, it ought not be our family. Let it be the guy that cuts you off in traffic. You shouldn't do that. 
But it's better you, you cuss him out than that you cuss your wife out. Be not bitter against them, Paul said. Notice not only our roles as partners, but notice our roles as parents. It says, children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. I'm not going to say a lot about this. I'm going to take some liberty to catch up a little bit and make a little time here. But I will merely point this out. What's the principle of parental rule? Nowhere does it say, children, obey your parents in all things except. It says in all things. Now, I'm not preaching to kids right now. As far as I know, we don't have any kids still in, in their parents' home, maybe. But, but it, uh, I was looking at Anna when I said No, I was looking at Hannah when I said that. Uh, maybe. But by and large, I mean, you know, we're grown adults here. I understand that. So we need to understand what our role is as a parent. That what we should expect of our children is complete and total obedience. Now, some of you are going to say, preacher, hey, listen, i got two kids. I get it, right? But I need to understand this, and you as a parent need to understand this too. That our, our, our children are going to chafe under our authority. That's natural. That's normal. That doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. Later on, he's going to give some instruction. We're going to get to it. But we need to recognize that to our children, we are to introduce and induct them into the idea of authority. And having and wielding authority in the lives of our children is not a negative thing, despite what Dr. Phil says, despite what Oprah says, despite what all the parenting books say. The Word of God says that the children are to obey us in all things and that we are the authority in their life. How you teach your children to deal with authority is going to do more to set the course of their life than what school they go to, what college they go to, what skills they learn, what trades they're proficient in. How you teach them how to interact with authority is going to dictate how they interact with authority throughout the rest of their life. In the workplace, in, in, in the church, in the home, and ultimately in their relationship to God. Our role as a parent, our responsibility, the principle, ought to be that we are teaching them the importance of authority. Now that's not the only thing we're teaching them, but it is a very important thing that we're teaching them. That authority is a reality. It's not a reality because I am an authority. It is a reality because that is the nature of life. And we are either going to teach them how to function appropriately in that environment, or we're going to send them out as a ship with no sails into the world, not ready to face the inevitable authority that they're going to face. When the blue and red lights come on, doesn't matter how you've parented them, authority has pulled up behind their car. When, when the boss says, be here on time, doesn't matter whether you gave them a pass or not, they're going to get fired if they're not. And when they have to interact with the God of glory, whose authority is unchallenged and unflinching and matchless, doesn't matter how much we've gone to bat for them. What's going to matter is whether they understand the concept of authority. They're going to have to answer to God one day. So we see the principle of parental rule. Notice the principle of parental authority. Verse 21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. It's interesting. Is that word anger, you know what it means? Exasperation. Disheartenment. Frustration. Discouragement. And what I believe Paul is getting at is he's saying this, that our parental choices and decisions in life should be informed and dictated by what's best for our kids and by what infuses and injects biblical truth into their life. I will admit to you, I swore I would never as a parent say things like, because I said so. I swore to myself. I made promises to myself. I made oaths before the God of heaven that I would never tell my child to dry it up. Or that if he don't stop crying, I'll give him something to cry about. And I've said every one of them. So I stand guilty before you, right? 
I've done it. You've done it. If you're a parent. We've all done it. But we need to understand that every time that moment of frustration we feel because they've done something stupid and crazy, that moment is a moment where we have an opportunity to inject biblical truth into their life. And our goal should not merely be to get them out of our hair. Our goal should not just be to punish them. But our goal, listen, punishment, correction, let me say it that way. Correction from a parent should not be only punitive. It should be coercive. It should be instructive. We should parent our our children to the end that they might grasp truth. Now, sometimes kids grasp truth through punishment. There are times that the punitive nature of the discipline I received uh, instructed me in truth. So I'm not saying that there's no uh, room or call to be punitive. I'm not saying we don't discipline our kids. I'm not saying we don't sometimes do things merely so they have to live with the consequences of their dumb decisions. Of course we do that. That's part of it. But it should never be spiteful. And it should never be meaningless. It should always be to the end that we might guide them and instruct them in truth. You know how I know this? Because he says, provoke them not to anger. Why? Lest they be discouraged. Every human being has both a will and a spirit. The will is what determines the direction of our life. The spirit is what provides the drive in our life. Our goal in parenting our children should never be to break their spirit. Only their will. Their will has to be broken. But the design should never be to break their spirit. It should never be to grieve them or to discourage them. But it should always be to bring their will under our authority that one day, when God seeks to bring their will under His authority, they'll know what the proper response is. So we find some rules for our domestic life. Look at the next verse, verse 22. It says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Whatsoever ye do, he says, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. He gives us some practical instruction for our business life. When he talks about masters and servants, you know what he's talking about? Masters and servants. He's talking about slaves. Some people try to skirt the issue of slavery uh, as it's addressed in the Bible by saying, well, it was just indentured servitude. Well, I will tell you this. In the Old Testament, under the Hebrew law, it was indentured servitude. And that was the type of quote-unquote slavery that God, I won't say encouraged, but at least allowed and, and endorsed to some degree in the Old Testament. It was never taking a person as property against their will and using them as, as chattel. That was never something in Hebrew law that was done. That instead was indentured servitude, which was the idea of this. This is a radical concept in this idea of rampant socialism today, but the idea that your labor belongs to you. And if you wanted to use your labor to buy something or to pay off a debt, then you had the right to do that. Today we're supposed to believe we own everybody else's labor. So socialism is. But the biblical principle was, was personal property rights and that you owned your own labor. And if you wanted to sell yourself into indentured servitude to pay off a debt, you had the right to do that. And God gave prescribed methods for doing that. With that said, that's not the type of slavery that Paul's talking about here. We ain't talking about in, in Israel. We're talking about in Rome. We're talking about in Greece. We're talking about Roman slavery. And that was the owning of an individual. 
And in that sense, nowhere does God endorse slavery throughout the New Testament. Nowhere does he say, hey, slavery is a good thing. Let's keep that going. You know what instead he does? Because here's the reality. We are not as believers political reformers. Now, I'm not saying there haven't been believers that have sparked political revolution and reformation that God has used. You and I wouldn't be here today if there hadn't been some God-fearing people that were willing to spark a revolution so our country exists. But our purpose as Christians is not to spark political change. We're citizens of heaven. God didn't take up the, uh, the, the cause of doing away with Roman slavery because God knew in a few uh, short years Rome itself would fall. And because, very simply, God's intent is not to reform the conditions of the secular world. Rather, it's to save lost men and to change their lives and transform them from the inside out. So you know what God would do in the New Testament as he dealt with slavery? He would speak to the master, and he would speak to the slave, and he would say, as a master, here's your responsibility as a Christian. Here's how you ought to treat people. As a slave, here's your responsibility as a Christian. Here's how you ought to operate in the environment that you find yourself in. And you might say, well, preacher, we've done away with slavery. Well, that's questionable. I'm still working on a 30-year mortgage. Somebody say amen right there. But, uh, but yeah, slavery like this, we, we've done away with. But you know what relationships that are sort of similar that we've not done away with? The relationship between employer and employee. Business line. And we find that these same principles, they apply in our business line. First, he speaks to men and their tasks. He speaks to the servants first. You know why? Because the prerogative is always with those that are subjected and always with those that are in the lower and lesser place to affect change. And so that's who he speaks to first. Verse 22, servants, he says, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. He mentions first off the measure of their service. They're to obey in all things. In other words, we in our business interactions, in as much as we can carry out a task without having to trample upon the tenets and truths of God's word. In other words, if your boss is telling you to do something against scripture, it's time to find a new job. But if they're not, then you have placed yourself in a, in a place of, of subjection to them. And if you want to have a good testimony for Christ, then you ought to do everything you can to please them. To try to do what's right. The measure of their service, all things. Notice the manner of their service. Uh, he says this, that we're to obey in all things your masters. How? According to the, or uh, not according to the flesh. That's not how we're supposed to do it. Your masters according to the flesh. How are we supposed to do it? Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, he says, do it heartily as to the Lord, not unto men. Can I make a simple statement and then three simple applications and then four sub points, then two sub sub points? No, I'm joking. The simple statement is this. We ought to be the best and do the best that we can in whatever avenue we find ourselves in. I shared this Sunday night, but uh, I saw a preacher made this statement, told this little story just back to this, and it resonated with me. He said he was in a restaurant, and he went to use the restroom in the restaurant. And uh, while he was in there, the manager of the restaurant came into the restroom and used the restroom and went and washed his hands. And when he got done washing his hands, he, he took a clean rag and he wet it, and he, he wiped down the whole sink area. And he reached up and he wiped down all of the mirror area and all around the edges of it. And then he threw that rag away, looked at himself, adjusted his, uh, his, his uh, outfit, his uh, whatever you want to call it, his uniform, and turned around and walked out. And my preacher friend made a very insightful statement. He said this, that man did not do what he did because he was the manager of that restaurant. That man was the manager of that restaurant because he did what he did. In other words, because he was willing to be the best 
and do the best. That was why he had arisen through the ranks. It ought to be as every believer that when we find ourselves in the secular realm, in business, environment, relationships, that we're the best worker that we can be and that we do the best work that we possibly can. Think about these three things that he gives. And some of y'all that have been in this environment before, you know what, how meaningful this is to a boss. Uh, it ought to be that the boss of a Christian can lead them. In other words, he says this, that what we do, we're to do not with eye services, men pleasers. It ought to be that a boss could walk away from a Christian doing their job and not have to worry whether they're going to do their job. Because what they're doing, they're not doing to impress their boss. They're doing it for the God that they serve. He ought to not only be able to lead them, he ought to be able to lead them. It says singleness of heart, fearing God. That denotes focus, singleness of heart. And it ought to be that uh, the most passionate, the most excited, the most dedicated person in the whole business is the child of God. And that they are the person that is willing to be led by their boss if he's not trying to lead them down a path of unrighteousness. Not only that, a boss of a Christian ought to be able to load them down with responsibility. It says this, that we're to do what we do heartily, heartily, with our whole heart. Man, we work hard as we can. Work hard as we can. <clears throat> I've made the statement to people before, and I believe this is true today. You want me to give you some career advice, especially if you're young or if you're starting off in, in a new industry? If you'll show up ten minutes early, stay ten minutes late, work the whole time you're there, you'll never be out of work, by and large. Because in the world today, there are so few people that are willing to be dedicated in their task, in their vocation, in their job. You don't even have to be good at what you do. If you'll just be there and do what needs to be done and do it the best you can, you'll never, you'll never stand in a bread line. It ought to be that as children of God that we have a great testimony at our workplace because we're hard workers and we're people that can be trusted. Then he speaks to masters and their trust. Uh, verse number four, or verse number one of chapter four. He says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. <laughs> Notice here that he speaks to them as a man in authority. And he says, your responsibility is to give them that which is just and equal. Uh, we might say it this way, uh, that a boss in a work environment ought to treat his subordinates right and treat them as well as he possibly can. Just denotes righteousness, right? We've been justified. Uh, you know, Noah was a just man. Abraham was just means he was righteous. In other words, if we're in a place of authority in business, we ought to treat those underneath us right. We ought to maintain a godly testimony in front of them. Later on, this is going to be very meaningful, because guess what? He's getting right to, ready to write a companion letter to a master. And it's going to be carried in the hands of his slave. And in that, he's giving instruction. But also here, he's giving instruction to Philemon. In gentleness, in discretion, in discernment. And he's saying to Philemon and anyone else that finds themselves in a role of leadership and authority, you ought to treat him righteously. Treat him righteously. Later on, he would tell uh, Philemon that how he received Paul, that's how he ought to receive Onesimus. Not as a servant, but as a brother in Christ. Treat them righteously. And then also, give them what they're owed. Equally. Impartiality. If they've worked for it, you ought to give it to them, and you ought not prefer one above the other. And then he speaks to them not only as a man in authority... But he speaks to him as a man under authority. This is why, I don't know, I like this, I think it's funny. Knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Guess what? Every boss has a boss. And at the end of the day, there is a boss, and I don't mean that irreverently, but there is a boss, he is the boss, and one of these days, every one of us is going to answer to him. 
So as such, we ought to treat those that are under our leadership and our authority. We ought to treat them well. And then notice finally, and I'll be done. Uh, he gives us some instruction for our secular life. Look at verse number two. Well, I'll tell you what, before we get there, I want you to notice a phrase. Verse number five. He says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. That's an important phrase. You'll probably hear me preach on it soon, in fact. Them that are without. Harkens back to the days of Israel when there was two types of people in the world. If you were a Jew, there's two types of people. Those in the camp, those out of the camp. Man, I'm glad that the Lord Jesus, he suffered out of the gate, out of the camp, so that he could bring us in. But now those of us that have been saved, we're within. And those that are lost, they're without. And so the Christian life ought to be lived not just with a clear vision to him that's above or to those that are within, but also to those that are without. So he's talking about our secular life, our testimony to those around us. And he gives us three basic rules. Number one, he says we're to be prayerful in character. Look at verse number two. He says continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds that I may make it excuse me, manifest as I ought to speak. Uh, we ought to recognize that our greatest weapon, I don't want to even use the, word term, the term weapon, to be honest, our greatest resource in interacting with a lost world, certainly our greatest weapon against those that seek to uh, destroy you know, Christians and, and Bible Christianity, and certainly our greatest weapon against the devil and against the flesh and against the world in the sense of a cultural system that seeks to withstand biblical truth, but also as a resource to reach those without, that are lost, that are they're without, and guess what you and I were at one time too? We're only within because somebody that was within reached without and gave us the truth, and then Christ brought us in. Our greatest resource is prayer. Prayer. Praying for them. Notice that prayer is to be the great habit of life. He says we're to continue. Continue. Carries with it the idea of being strong towards something. You know, sometimes we'll say this, especially about politicians, they're strong on that. They're strong on that. I, I believe our president right now, I believe he's strong on the border. I believe that. I believe he's strong on the border. I believe he's stronger on pro-life than what I expected he would be, just to be honest. I didn't expect a man that had been part of a party for 60 years that advocates for abortion. I didn't expect he'd be pro-life, but he's been a friend of the pro-life movement. Certain things he's strong on. There's other things he's not very strong on. And we could say that about any politician. They're strong on certain things. As believers, you know what we ought to be strong on? We ought to be strong on prayer. Man, we ought to believe in it. We ought to practice it. We ought to devote ourselves to it. It says continue. Prayer is not only the great habit of life, it's the guarded habit of life. He says prayer, pray, continue in prayer, verse number two, and watch in the same. Watch in the same. We ought to, through prayer, maintain a vigilance in our life against the uh, wiles of the devil. But also, we ought to, through prayer, maintain a vigilance in our life for opportunities to be a witness to those that are without. Prayer is the grateful habit of our life. He says that we're to do this uh, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. It ought to be that our prayer is seasoned with gratitude towards God. And then notice this. I think this is interesting. I kind of like the way the commentator said this. Prayer is the grandest habit of life. Here's Paul sitting in a Roman jail cell, locked up, barred away from the world around him. But he's got an audience of one because every few hours they bring a fresh soldier in to hear a preaching marathon and chain him up to the Apostle Paul. Paul's got that audience of one. He's got a pen in his hand. He's got paper at his disposal. He's got friends that are permitted to come and see him and carry his correspondence. And Paul says in verse 
Number three, he says, with all praying also for us, us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. I've heard a lot of uh, missionaries preach on this. The idea being, give us great entrance in with the peoples that we're going to. In other words, give us opportunities. But I don't think that's what Paul was saying. I think he was saying, I have opportunities, but I need to know what to say. And this is a man with the Holy Ghost pen in his hand right now. But he says, if you ain't praying for me, I just don't know what to say. I know some things I can say, but I don't know what to say if God's people are not praying for us. And so he says, through your prayers, I'm able to be an effective witness. Think about that. Through the prayers of God's people, they entered into the evangelistic ministry of the Apostle Paul. You understand that through Paul, kings and emperors heard the gospel. There were those that were within the royal family of Rome that had been won to Christ because of Paul's witness and testimony. History would suggest to us that before he died, even wicked Emperor Nero, who used to light his garden parties with crucified and burning Christians, even he heard the truth of the gospel at least once in his life. And these humble Christians at Colossae, they had a part in that as they prayed for him. So we must be prayerful in character. Verse number five, we must be prudent in conduct. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. So we ought to recognize that inasmuch as we interact with lost people around us, that we need to be doing two things. One, we need to be guarding our testimony. If I had two more hours, I'd just settle in here and talk about examples and applications of this. But suffice it to say that a testimony that has taken years to build can take only moments to break down. Now, we can repair that testimony through humility, through going to people, asking their forgiveness, confessing our faults, saying, hey, man, I messed up. I did the wrong thing. I used foul language. I blew up at you. I didn't tell you the whole truth. We can repair that testimony, but we better recognize that it only takes a moment to destroy our testimony. We ought to be guarding our testimony. And we ought to not only be guarding our testimony, we ought to be guarding our time. I like that he says redeeming the time. It's almost like he looked at an hourglass and he saw the kernels, the grounds, the grains of sand falling to the bottom of it and said, man, I wish we'd just scoop some of those back up. But the reality is time is a non-renewable commodity and it is forever slipping away from us. Uh, Imagine if somebody came and gave you every day of your life, gave you $1,440 and said to you, every day of your life, I'm going to give you $1,440. And the only catch is this, every single day, whatever's left over, you've got to give back to me. You can spend it however you want. You can go out, you can blow it, you can buy any treasures you want, you can use it helping people, you can give it to family, you can give it to friends. But every day, whatever's left, I'm going to take it back, and you'll never get to spend it. You know what we'd do? We'd never sleep. We'd spend all day on Amazon. We'd spend all day at the Walmart. And every day, God gives us 1,440 minutes. And he says, when it's all said and done, you don't get any of them back. You get another 1,440 tomorrow, but you don't get these back. And yet we often waste them on, and me too. I mean, I'm guilty. I ain't fussing at you. I do it. Waste it on entertainment, hobbies, nonsense, foolishness. I'm not saying there's not a place to relax and unwind. I'm not saying God, I mean, even Christ came apart from time to time. I'm not saying there's no place for that, but I'm saying we need to value time preciously. Because we don't get any of it back. And then finally, he says, we have to be pungent in our conversation. I know people like that. Verse 6, he says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, 
that ye, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. We need to count our words as a valuable resource in winning the lost. I got saved because somebody told me the gospel. I probably would have never got saved if somebody, if a Christian had cussed me out. But I got saved because a Christian shared the gospel with me. It was somebody's words that affected my life and is the reason I stand before you today. So we ought to recognize the importance of our words. He mentions three things. One, he says we ought to add sweetness to our conversation. He said, let him be with grace. With grace. You know, it was said of the Lord Jesus in Luke 4.22 that the people wondered at the graciousness of his words. Always kind, always with grace, always conscientious of others. You'd be amazed how many doors politeness can open to you. I've had times in my life, I, I believe it or not, I know how to talk a lot, but I don't know how to talk very well. And when I get in a stressful environment and situation, sometimes, you ain't going to believe this, but sometimes I am not the kindest person. And there, don't laugh, and there have been situations where I've needed to have something done, and I've called, you know, you have things happen, you, you get a bill in the mail and it's not right, or, or something happens, you know, you, you get a speeding ticket or whatever, you never do that, but it's happened to me. So there, there's been times that something's happened, I've needed to call and get something straightened out. Man, I call and I'm frustrated and I'm mad, and then I'll be talking to Mama about it later on. She does what a Mama does. She'll say, well, honey, you want me to call and talk to him? I'll say, yeah, sure. Here's the bill. See what you can get them to do. She'll call me later and she'll say, you know, they forgave that bill. I'll say, forgave it? It was just, it was 80 cents too high. What what do you mean? Well, they forgave it. I just called them and I was real sweet and I told them I was your mama. You were a pastor and this and that. Sharing a bunch of personal stuff that nobody but me and God and my wife know and some things she don't even know. She'll share all this information. She'll be real sweet, self-deprecating, humble. And man, doors will open to her. It'd be amazing how much ground we could gain if we put a little grace in our speech. Then he says we ought to add seasoning to our conversation. He says it ought to have salt in it. I don't mean salty language, all right? But what it means is this salt. The Bible says this, we're the salt of the earth. What that means is this, that we are an element of of biblical truth, and if I can use this word, culture, biblical culture in the world around us. And just as salt changes the flavor of whatever it's added to, we ought to change the environment that we're in. So if salt is symbolic of Christian virtue and Christian truth and biblical truth and Christian culture, what does that mean that our speech ought to be seasoned with it? It means this, that our language ought to be, we ought to always be talking about biblical truth and biblical principles. Always, it ought to infect our language. I told you I was going to bring this up earlier. I told you I'd bring it up later. I'm bringing it up. The, we, it ought to just constantly permeate our language. We ought to always be quoting Scripture. Always be talking to people about the Lord. Always sharing with people what God has done in our life. We would find, it's so funny, man. Man does things so backwards. How many times do we pass by a hundred lost and dying people in a day and not talk to any of them about the Lord? And then, and I'm for it, man. We're doing the new mover thing. I believe in it. I, I, I'm proud of those that are involved in it, and I appreciate it. But don't be one of those people that walks by a hundred lost and dying people and then takes the time out of your week to get in your car and go and labor and sacrifice to go and stand at someone's door and hand them a gospel tract. And you say, well, what do I ought to do, preacher? Well, do the one and don't neglect the other. I'm not saying give up on doing... Uh, visitation or passing out tracts and giving tracts to your waitress. I'm not saying that you ought not do those things. But I'm saying don't pass by those hundred people. 
be always looking for an opportunity to sprinkle a little salt in the conversation and point someone towards Christ. And he says this in closing. I've said that about four times. He says that you may know how you ought to answer every man. With kindness, with biblical truth, with both of those things, the right spirit and the right scripture, guess what? The Spirit of God has the tools that He needs to direct your heart and mind in the right way to approach people. We ought to add spirit to our conversation. How are we going to know how we ought to answer every man? I don't know what's going on in everybody's heart, but there is one that resides within me that does. And if I'll follow His leading, then He will guide me in what to say. He'll give me the words. He'll give me the spirit, the disposition, the concepts of how to approach it. If I'll just follow the Spirit of God as He guides me and leads me, then He'll never lead me wrong. And He'll always use me to the fullest of my potential if I will yield to Him fully.